welcome to Strike First. I'm your host, Berserk, and I just kind of wanted to just get things started. I wanted to talk about what's going on with the teachers union in Chicago. As some of you may have heard, the teachers union voted to go back to remote learning this past week, rightfully so in my opinion. But this is from a CBS affiliate in Chicago. The vote by teachers came after a total of 88% of the members of the Chicago's Teachers Union House of Delegates also voted in favor of moving to the remote learning. The electronic vote for all union members was to be open until 9 p.m., but was later extended to 10 p.m., with parents remaining in suspense. Now, that's over, and Chicago has gone back to remote learning, specifically Chicago public schools. And this is a news release from the CTU, the Teachers Union. Let us be clear. The educators of this city want to be in their classrooms with their students. We believe that our city's classrooms are where our students should be. Regrettably, the mayor and her CPS leadership have put the safety and vibrancy of our students and their educators in jeopardy. To the parents and the guardians of the city, we want you to know that we put your children in our care and put their well-being and safety first. We fight for your children like they are our own because they are. As the pandemic continues, we will continue to do everything in our power to ensure that our classrooms are the safest and healthiest places for your children to learn, thrive, and grow. We understand the frustration that is felt by tonight's decision and assure our families that we will continue to work diligently as we have for months to encourage the mayor and her CPS leadership team to at last commit to an enforceable safety protection centered on the well-being of our students, their families, and our school communities. Now, the day after this news release came out, there were 44,000 new cases of COVID just in Illinois alone, and I imagine a good chunk of those came from Chicago because the Omicron variant is just burning through everywhere in this country right now. And you would think that a Democrat specifically a Democratic mayor in a very blue city, in a well-blue state, would be siding with the teachers' union. Traditionally, that's how I always learned about Democrats, was back in my day, when I was first becoming politically aware, I could never dream of a Democrat chastising on MSNBC, CNN, wherever, a teachers' union, because they're supposed to be friendly to educate educators and friendly to unions. Well, this is what Lori Lightfoot had to say about it. I will not allow them to take our children hostage. I will not allow them to compromise the future of this generation of CPS students. Enough is enough. We are standing firm and we are going to fight to get our kids back in in-person learning. I expect this sort of stuff from Republicans, but the fact that Democrats, the supposed party of the working class, have a mayor blasting a teacher's union <clears throat> is just a little strange to me. And it just shows you how in bed they are with corporate interests, because if remote learning is going on, that means a parent is most likely going to be missing from the workforce. And with the labor shortages, various jobs, that's a no-go. They don't care about covid cases right now anymore and i said that last episode is once the rich quit worrying about covid it's over for everybody and that's kind of what we're seeing right now with this push back to work they think just because vaccinations are out that everything's fine that we're not breaking records every single day with new covid cases and mayor Lori lightfoot is not the only one you know 
fighting teachers unions right now. New mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, is also fighting teachers unions. And this is what he had to say. That Eric, uh, Eric Adams and I are moving together to create a safe environment for our children. The numbers right now state, and it's very clear, the safest place for children right now is in a school building. That's the safest place for them. If they're not in school, it does not mean they're not going outdoors. It does not mean they're not going to deal with the trauma of not having socialization, not getting a meal, not being able to get remote learning. This, it's a luxury to say, stay at home when you have all the tools that you needed. Now, I also wanted to play another clip of this because uh, Eric Adams kind of showed his hand this week about how he really feels about, as he put it, low-skilled workers. And it's no surprise. But here's the clip. My low-skilled workers, my cooks, my dishwashers, my messengers, my shoeshine people, those who work in Dunkin' Donuts, they cannot, they don't have the academic skills to sit in a corner. Now, it just seems to me that the narrative on the Democratic side is matching the narrative that's been on the Republican side since the very beginning of the pandemic is that it's no big deal. Everybody get back to work. Get the kids back in school so you can get back to your job. And that's what's so shocking to me about it is not so much the politicians, the establishment of the Democrats, is that their voters are co-signing this. Media figures that, you know, present themselves as somewhat progressive are echoing the same sentiments of, well, we have the vaccinations, so everybody's fine. We need our kids back in school. Well, why do we need our kids back in school so bad? Is it because we need to prop up this economy? We need to get people back to work because it's shown that this, if we stop this machine, if we stay at home, we can have control. We, I do believe that we have been in a non-organized general strike multiple times since this pandemic has happened. And every time that things start to pause, the elites and their politicians panic and lose their mind. And now for months, it's been the Republicans doing it. And the Democrats have slowly started doing it. But this is just full mask off of Democratic mayors and Democratic pundit figures on the media being like, no, we need to get our kids back to school. And it, it just, to me, in my opinion, just shows that there is no party that really represents the working class of this country. All right. So that's not the only thing that happened this past week. Uh, lots of news that happened. And this is from CNN. 4.5 million Americans quit their jobs in November. And once again from CNN, a record of 4.5 million Americans voluntarily left their jobs in November, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The, this pushed the quit rates up to 3%, matching the high from September. One of our first episodes was talking about the job numbers from September where people had, you know, quit their jobs. And this is what they had to say. Workers were most likely to quit their jobs in the hospitality industry. No shocker there if you ask me, which by far had the highest quit rates at 
5.8% in November, as well as though in healthcare, the numbers in transportation, warehousing, and utilities also increased. So all across the board, there seems to be people quitting their jobs, but specifically in hospitality and healthcare are the two big ones because people have had enough, especially in crowded restaurants, being next to people I can speak personally coming from the restaurant industry years ago is you are jam packed. Even if you were in a somewhat big restaurant, you were working very closely to people and you're working very closely with the public and there's all sorts of chance of exposure there. So I can't blame hospitality workers for being like, no, I don't want to do this. I'm out. Uh, healthcare workers. I'm also not shocked by that. There has to be a high amount of burnout going on with them. It's been documented that there is burnout with them going on, that they're repeating this cycle of overflowing hospitals and just a huge rush of influx, I would say, of patients coming in. They have to be exhausted. And that's that's no shocker there. The high quit rates is a symptom of the tight labor market where workers can quickly and find a new and potentially a better job. So hospitality, of course, is going to suffer from this because there's, you know, people want to get out of hospitality more so than ever. And once again, can't blame them. So they're looking for better jobs. The November data released Tuesday doesn't factor yet in the arrival of the Omicron variant on U.S. shores. So this is before the latest COVID surge. And I'm very curious what the numbers are going to be like in December and this month when they finally come out is I think that we're going to see another huge amount of people quitting their jobs again and can't blame them. Now, I see lots of people People have asked me, I see people on Twitter just being like, they don't understand why people are quitting, even if they can get better jobs. Why can't these jobs be filled in quicker? Well, here's a good point, and this is from the same article. Case in point, the UCLA Labor Center said in a report published on Tuesday, nearly a quarter of fast food workers in the Los Angeles area had contracted covid over the past 18 months, so 25% of fast food workers in the L.A. area alone had become infected with COVID since the pandemic started. Less than half of them had been notified by their employer that they had potentially been exposed to a virus. So not only are they underpaid, overworked, but their employers aren't even telling them if fellow co-workers are getting co are having COVID. And so these people, you know, are waking up feeling kind of shitty and they go to the doctor and they're like, Oh, you got COVID. So there's no loyalty in so many jobs in this country. They don't care if you get COVID. It's all about meeting the bottom line, meeting sales goals, labor goals, what have you. And the fact that fast food employers were not telling their staff that, hey, you might have gotten COVID. I'm not saying break any sort of medical privacy laws or anything like that, but at least go to your staff and be like, hey, you might have worked with a person that had COVID. You should maybe go get checked out. Better yet, say, hey, so-and-so. On this shift, on this day, you were exposed to COVID. 
you should probably go get tested. But they're not even doing that. This is people waking up feeling a little cruddy and knowing that there's a pandemic going on, getting tested and being like, oh, well, shit, I have COVID. My employer didn't tell me because that's probably the only place I've been consistently over the past couple of weeks. So this is why people are quitting people. This is why so many people have had enough is they're overworked, they're underpaid, and clearly their employers don't even care about them. Uh, another fun bit of news this week is, does anybody remember when Google's you know unofficial motto, I'm not even sure if it was unofficial, but they said, don't be evil. <laughs> well, they kicked that out of the door because they denied their workers a raise to match inflation and kicked those profits that they've been raking in since... The pandemic started back up top, and this comes from The Verge. Google is giving four of its top executives a significant pay bump, raising their salaries from $650,000 to $1 million. Just weeks after the company told staffers it would not automatically adjust salaries to account for inflation, the new executive salaries were disclosed in an SEC filing. The executives receiving the $1 million base salaries are cheap, Financial officer, Ruth Porat. I'm going to mangle the rest of these names, but you get the picture. But all four executives are eligible to participate in a maximum of $2 million's annual bonus program based on contributions to Google's performance against social and environmental goals for 2022. According to the filing, each person has also been granted stock awards with the target value in the millions of dollars. Google has been very financially successful of late. It posted its fifth quarter in a row of record profits in October. But in contrast to giving the four execs huge pay raises, Google's vice president of compensation told workers at an all hands in December that the company doesn't plan to make a broad salary adjustment to account for the rising inflation rate in the United States. The raises were also given as Google is embroiled in a legal battle with employees over charges that were they were illegally fired in 2019. So, if you're catching the drift here, is inflation's rising, even if you're a well-paid Google engineer. If you're just a worker, not in the upper echelons of management, they don't even really care about you either. You're probably doing better than a lot of workers in this country. But Google, who said, don't be evil, decided to funnel all of its profits upwards with not only just base salary pay but awarding huge amounts of stock to those same executives so those executives are getting huge huge bumps in their net worth this year and google basically just told its workers uh fuck off we don't have to match inflation we don't have to give you a raise we got to pay these executives I know you do all the hard work uh, coding and keeping this ship running, but the multiple captains deserve all the reward, not you. And the last bit of news I wanted to talk about this week is that Americans are expected to dig into their savings. And this is from Quartz. As of November, Workers are putting away less money from their wages into savings compared to what they were saving pre-pandemic. This spells the end of the higher levels of savings seen during the pandemic. Well, before the pandemic, I remember lots of articles coming out saying Americans 
could not afford a $400 emergency. And that was pretty universally accepted from what I understand was most Americans could not afford a $400 emergency. Now, with inflation, uh, they probably couldn't afford a $350 emergency. And now they're expected to dig into their savings because the cost of living is skyrocketing in this country, in my opinion, no matter what the media tries to tell us that it's fine. These are just average adjustments. Well... These average adjustments may not be felt by some people in this country, but they're felt by a lot of workers who are already struggling to put food on the table, already struggling to keep a roof over their head, heat and during this frigid winter for their households. And now you're telling them, hey, sorry, but you're going to have to dip into your savings, which most people don't have enough savings to begin with, and that's because of just how rigged this entire system is against people. And a lot of people will point to the child tax credit, uh, stimulus money, bonus unemployment insurance. Well, those are gone now just because America briefly, briefly threw a few crumbs at the average worker of this country doesn't mean that everything is fine. If anything, things are worse because you've taken away those lifelines as people continue to catch COVID, as inflation is just destroying people's uh, budgets. And this is why so many people in this country are checking out of why so many people are quitting their jobs, in my opinion, is they're just like, I'm fighting like hell to keep myself afloat, and I still can't stay afloat. I'm still sinking. I'm sinking further and further every year, and no party, Republican, Democrat, blue team, red team, as I like to call them, are doing anything to help me. Help anything the democrats are taking away things child tax credit for instance because as i talked about last week i don't see that passing in the current parameters that we're in right now i just don't so basically from all what i'm seeing on all these news of this week and the teachers union fights is that we're on our own and we got to take care of each other and nobody's coming to help us. The government's not going to come to help us. This is a topic that I've wanted to talk about for a little bit, but signs that their employers are trying to get rid of them in ways that you could kind of protect yourself. So we're going to talk about that. I'm going to just preface this and say that protecting yourself from trying to get not fired or let go or laid off is pretty hard. And most of the time, I'm just going to say you need to document everything, especially if you're getting hints that your employer is about to get rid of you. So you can maybe use that with a wrongful termination or draw on employment to get you by. But these are the signs that your employer is trying to get rid of you. And I've learned these over the years in my position of as a manager 
in both hospitality and retail. And it's they're pretty dirty things. Now, I don't know if I don't know everybody's circumstances why an employer, manager, owner would want to get rid of you, but it could be petty things. I've seen some really petty things in my time in the workforce. It could be something as small as you called out of work one day to take care of yourself or a family member, or you voiced an opinion that your manager or employer did not like, or you just rubbed another coworker the wrong way and they're playing politics by kissing the manager's ass and have convinced the manager to get rid of you. Now, rather than fire you outright, they try to find ways of making your life just more difficult, hoping you will quit or they can just write you up enough and create a document trail to a lot of the times to deny you unemployment benefits. Or because if you leave on your own, once again, you can't draw unemployment if you quit in a lot of states, from my understanding, at least the ones I've managed in. And the one of the biggest ones that they do, and they love doing this to part-timers, ones that, you know, are going to college, have another job, uh, have to pick up their kids at school, as they love shifting your schedule around. I've had this happen to me personally before I was even in management is the story was I was working for a place. I rubbed the wrong person the wrong way and they used to schedule me when I was supposed to be in classes for in college. And then I would come in and I'd be like, hey, you know my availability. Why do you keep on doing this? And they were just like, well, they would give me all sorts of excuses like, well, the, ske- the schedule's automatic. The computer does most of it. no. You, I know you had the ability to change these things. You're just doing this to fuck with me. Uh, luckily, in those days, I could just go to another place and get a job on the spot because I had lots of experience in hospitality at the time, even when I was younger. But that's one of the big things that they do is they like to shift schedules around, schedule you when you're in class or schedule you when you're supposed to pick up your child. That one's a really dirty one that's always bothered me. And I've seen it happen when I was a manager and when I wasn't a manager is that the people above me would try to schedule somebody that they didn't like when they knew that they had to pick up their child. And then they'd be like, you were scheduled at three o'clock. Why weren't you here? And they'd just be like, I was trying to pick up my kid. Well, can't you arrange other travel arrangements? Can't your kid take the bus? Can't your kid walk to school? Uh, Just basically heartless things. That's one of the things that's bothered me the most since I've left working those industries is the amount of times I've seen parents that are just trying to provide for their child, give their child a little bit more, have their child used against them so they could fire the employee. And they love saying business needs. So, well, our business needs say that you need to be here at this time. So you need to figure out ways to get your child home and still be here at work. And this one's a hard one to counteract. I'm not going to lie because you aren't in a position of much authority. And all I can really say is document is everything, everything as much as possible. If you're a college student, have a printed copy of your schedule, usually handy on you. If you're a parent, uh, have the pickup times usually 
in the school handbook, they have, hey, this is what time the pickup times are. Have these handy on you so you can show your employer, your manager, why you weren't able to make the shift and just document everything as much as possible. As much as possible. So you can potentially say you were wrongfully terminated. Another big one that I see is basically just to bleed you out. That's a term I heard from one of the more ruthless GMs that I learned from bleed you out. Their strategy was just to cut your hours so low that you would just be forced to look for another job. Say you were working 40 hours, you rub the person the wrong way. Well, next thing you know, one week you're working only 32 hours, and the week after that, you're only working 24, and sooner or later, you're only working 16 hours, not enough to support you or your family. And you go to them, and they'll just be like, well, we just don't have the hours available for you because business is down, but other co-workers... They're still getting 40 hours. Well, they'll just say, well, it's seniority or they have more open availability than you do. That's how they get you on the open availability part is they'll just utilize you as much as possible. And once again, one of the things is document as much as possible. Keep your hours on you. Print off a schedule. Take a picture of your schedule is what I always told people. Take a picture of your schedule weekly. And just kind of keep it for your personal records. Another one. And this reminds me of a scene from The Wire. If anybody's watched it. Is if you rub somebody the wrong way. They ask you what department would you not like to work in. Don't tell them. Do not tell them. Uh, Because that's one of the best ways they get rid of you. Or what shift do you not want to work. Be as uh, mama on it as possible, because one of the biggest ways that they get rid of people is put them on the shifts that they hate or in the departments that they hate and just basically wait for you to be so miserable that you'll quit anyways. Um, I'll be honest, this is one I find the most insidious is putting them in a position that they hate. Because a lot of times employers will just act like nothing's normal, everything's normal, that they're not trying to get rid of this person, but they know that this person hates working early morning shifts, or this person hates working the night shift, or hates just doing this certain task, and they will just keep them in that position for months at a time and just basically wait for the person to quit their job. That way, they don't have to worry about answering questions on, like, why are you doing this to scheduling me this shift that goes against my availability and they don't have a good answer, or why they're scheduling everybody else 40 hours and cutting you down to 32 to 24 and to unsustainable levels. This one is the most insidious one to me because... The manager or the owner of the company can act like you're still doing a good job while just making you so damn miserable that you'll want to quit your job. And I'm going to get this off my chest. This was the tactic I used if I was instructed by an owner to get rid of somebody that just rubbed them the wrong way. Is I would 
put them on shifts that they hated with people that they didn't like or put them on jobs that I knew they would intend that they couldn't pull off completely and use that to either wait them out for them to be so miserable that they would quit their jobs or just to screw up and write them up so I'd have a paper trail to fire people. And I feel bad about that these days, knowing what I know about the workforce these days. I, I do feel bad about that, but I wanted to be transparent that this is the big one I see is. So when a manager or an owner asks you what you don't like at this job, don't answer them to you. Don't answer them. Say you like everything at this job. You don't. It doesn't matter what position you're in. Don't give them any clue that a certain shift, certain coworkers, certain tasks are things that you would not like to do or that you cannot do. Because if you ever rub them the wrong way, that's the first place they're going to put you. So this past week on Twitter, I asked, what do you do for a living and does your salary make the cut on the cost of living in your area? And these are some of the answers I got. Caregiver for the developmentally disabled. And no, my pay absolutely does not cut it. By luck, my house is $400 cheaper monthly than any other house I can find. My pay hasn't increased once the entire three years I've been at my job. Medical cannabis consultant. And no, it does not. I'm an experienced and decently credentialed IT professional, and I actually make an hourly rate of $16.50. The cost of living is pretty low here, but even though I split my rent for a house with three other people, building up savings is still annoyingly slow and can be wiped out. I work with people with disabilities in a group home. The pay doesn't keep up with the cost of living in my area. They try to pay us more, but the pay is set largely by the cheap-ass state. My mortgage is, is half the rent around here so I do okay on it. My co-workers barely scrape by. It does. I live in the Central Valley of Northern California and I'm a union millwright. Living wage in my city is 30 to 35 an hour and I make about half of that. I'm a school bus driver. My hourly rate is $18.50 but because of how the school district pays us, I don't actually see the kind of money I would if I worked a different job for the same amount of pay. It pays the bills but not much else. I've worked in tech sales for the last four years and for the first time in my life, my income makes the cut in terms of cost of living and ability to save money. I consider myself extremely lucky now having worked retail and other low wage jobs and for many bad bosses in my 20s. Billing manager at a private ambulance company and not even close. Engineering, yes it does. If I didn't have student loans, I'd live like a king. That's that's how a lot of people are that actually do have some decent paying jobs is even still student loans is just eradicating any chance of saving. When I could still work, I was an EG Technologist at a prominent children's hospital. I was a PRN, but had a pretty regular schedule of 32 hours a week. No benefits, though. Made about 19 an hour. I couldn't have survived without having my roommate. Our apartment is income-based federal. Let's see. I work for a startup. The 17 hours decent, but I have to pay out of pocket for medical insurance, approximately 400 a month with a $2,500 deductible. 
Also, no paid time off whatsoever. I made 15 an hour and not even close. You need three people making that to get by. Bartender. Fuck no, it does not. Most of the jobs in the area do not pay above what I make. Jesus. I do commercial HVAC installing. Yes, it does. I've doubled what I make in five years after a career change. Trade you Trades pay very well, especially if you join a union. Can't argue if you're there. Driving and barely. 25 an hour Canadian. HVAC technician for my local school district. Paying benefits are good for me, so I don't need to be running side jobs. Also, being union helps. I manage a kitchen for 35k a year, and it's actually pretty nice for my area. I pay for a home <clears throat> for a three-bedroom, two-bath, and good-sized front backyard. Rent is only 950 a month. Livable. Data engineer and big tech. Yes, I'm fully remote, so I had the ability to relocate to a lower cost area. Veterinarian technician, and absolutely not. Theater technician, stagehand, no it does not. We just unionized our shop, so we'll see if that changes. I hope it does for you. Currently in manufacturing and without overtime, no it doesn't. Driver for UPS, being a Teamster lets me afford Philly, no problem. We get free benefits and a free pension included. There's a theme here. The people that are in union positions seem to be doing much better than those who are non-unionized. I fix air conditioners and furnaces and not even close. Grocery store manager. Only three jobs in the whole store make enough to be at above the cost of living. The store director, the grocery manager, and the pharmacist. Rural letter carrier, 47k a year. Got lucky by buying a house 10 years ago with a USDA loan. Couldn't afford it now. Prices have more than double. Medium household income in the county is 51k. So a common theme I am seeing here is that those that are represented by a union seem to have the best chance of being able to match the cost of living. And some people in that thread have some lucky circumstances. They were smart or were capable of being able to buy a house years ago. And so they're in a better place than a lot of people. But the entire point to me is that it shouldn't be that way. <clears throat> you shouldn't have, you should still be able to afford basic necessities at any job. If you work full time, you should be able to have a living wage and be able to support yourself and your family and unfortunately in this country that's just not the way it is and once again i just want to point out that a lot of people in the thread that did have the best shot said that they were unions and to me i think that's a good indication that we should be organizing our workplaces and trying to unionize as much as possible. Do I think it's the end all be all solution to having equity in society? No, but it's a good starting step and would give us the effort to be able to focus on a lot of things. If that we are not having to work three jobs just to make 
ends meet in this country. So that's a big message I want to say for this episode is start trying to organize your workplace and start organizing locally. All right, everybody, that's our show this week. Uh, If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform of choice. Leave good reviews on your podcast platform of choice. It helps people find the show. And thank you for listening.